G'day everyone, uh, I'm Dave. If we haven't met before, um, really pleased to be with you here tonight. I want to begin tonight with a plea, um, a plea to everyone here. And that is, please don't ever, 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 ever give up on people. Don't give up on people. Don't write them off. Don't believe that there's someone in your life who is some way, somehow, outside the reach of the love of God, who is unable to be transformed by the gospel. Please don't write people off. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I'm sure you'll know people like what I'm thinking and talking about. Um, The people that you love and cherish, maybe it's a parent, maybe a a sibling, maybe a friend, someone from work, someone from school, someone from uni. You love and you cherish them. You, you've tried to share the gospel with them. You've tried to live a godly life in front of them. You've tried to talk about God, things you've tried to invite them along, but you've been met with nothing but rejection. And now, weeks, months, years on, you don't even bother. It's too late, you feel. Or perhaps, and I think this one is more powerfully um, distressing, is someone you know and love who used to call themselves a Christian, but now no longer does. And when you think of that person, you just think, there's no way they could ever come back. Whoever it is, in whatever circumstance or situation that they find themselves in, or you find yourself in with them, there's a voice in the back of your head that's just whispering, it would take a miracle for that person to be saved. So I want to say to you tonight that if you think that way, you are absolutely right. It would take a miracle to save that person. But if you are a Christian here tonight, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Saviour, then it has taken the exact same miracle to save you. And yet here we are. Here we find ourselves. So don't write people off. You know, tonight's chapter that we're looking at, there's like a hole on the stage here. Did you know that? It's like put here deliberately to trip me up. Tonight's chapter, Romans 11, um, is an intricate chapter, theologically complex. Has anyone studied it this week in growth group? It's a head-scratcher isn't it? I've chatted to some of you, uh, and even though the growth group material is wonderful and good discussions were had, it's one of those chapters where really um, it can be quite simple to get wrapped up in the axles of it, wrapped up in the details, and so find yourself a little bit lost. But as we go into this chapter tonight, both feed in. What I want you to do is remind yourself constantly of the major point that has been revealed through God's Word in this chapter. And that is that God's plan for God's people will always prevail. God is still saving souls. And even more than that, there is not one person with breath in their lungs, not one human being you know who is too far gone to be reached by God. I want you to remember that as we look at this chapter tonight. 
Well, context is uh, very, very important in the Bible, understanding the context with which uh, the parts of the Bible we look at were written, uh, and probably no more so a part of the Bible is what we're looking at tonight. If you have a Bible, please open up to Romans 11. Uh, if you have a phone, feel free to Google Romans 11 and follow along. It's going to be one of those passages where we go through uh, to see if we can really find the beauty, the profound um, truths unpacked within it. The situation in this part of the Bible is very important to understand. This part of the Bible, the book of Romans, is written by a man called Paul. And Paul was a Christian with a Jewish heritage. He'd grown up Jewish and become a Christian. If you look at chapter 11, verse 1, you'll see, interestingly enough, he refers to himself as an Israelite. Now, an Israelite is not a reference to the country Israel, the physical country Israel that still exists today, although that is the geographic location. But the word Israelite means son of Israel. And that's interesting because Paul's not from Israel, he's from Turkey. What he's doing is he's associating himself with the Jewish people who called themselves Israel, Israelites, Hebrews. Paul had a Jewish background, but midway in his life, he had become a Christian, Jewish by ethnicity, Christian by faith. After Paul became a Christian, he dedicated his life to teaching and telling other people about Jesus, Jews and Gentiles. That was the focus of what he did. But despite telling everyone, black, white, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, male, female, about Jesus, Paul kept holding on to a very, very soft spot in his heart towards Jewish people. He loved his own people. He had a great desire to see them one. But the problem was, as Paul has revealed so far in the book of Romans, that the Jewish people were in a very dark place spiritually. Come to chapter 10, verse 21 of your Bible. It's Romans chapter 10, verse 21. You have this unique situation unfolding. The Jewish people have been uniquely blessed by God in their history. God has chosen them as his people and given them the promises, the patriarchs, the covenants, the priests, the prophets, everything. They were his people. But despite God's faithfulness to them, one of the major themes in the Old Testament is the Jewish people, the Israelite, the Hebrews, responding unfaithfulness to God. They had turned their backs on him. And this reached a crescendo when God sent Jesus, the Messiah, to Jerusalem the Jewish epicenter. He sent, them, he sent Jesus to the Jews, but the Jews rejected him. And so you have the Jewish people uniquely blessed by God, but also having turned their backs on God. And chapter 10, verse 21 shows us how God feels about them and the situation at play. Let me read it for you. Concerning Israel, he, and that's God, concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You know, it's very simple and easy for us to turn our faith into um, emotionless functions that we do. But that's not our God. Look at this picture of God. His hands outstretched to his people. How do you react when someone rejects you? When you show someone love... And they respond back by ignoring you and rejecting you. What do you do? Well, I'm ashamed to say, for me personally, I get really committed to rejecting them back harder. That's how I treat my kids all the time. Like, oh, I'll show you a tantrum. Boom. But praise be to him from whom all blessings flow. 
that God is not like us. And God doesn't write his people off. God has a plan for his people that will always prevail. So come with me to the first 10 verses of chapter 11 as we see Paul answer the question of what God will do with the Jewish people. And he describes the present situation. Chapter 11, verse 1. I asked then, did God reject his people? You remember the context? It's a fair enough question. God had shown them love. They had rejected him. What does God do back? Did God reject his people? The answer comes back clearly, by no means. Verse 2, God did not reject his people. Despite their rebellion and rejection, transgression, despite their turning away from God, he did not reject them back. And to show the evidence of that, Paul gives two examples, one from his personal life, one from the biblical history. The personal one is found in verse 1. Paul says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is saying, I am Jewish. My history is Jewish. In fact, elsewhere in the Bible, he says, I am a Jew amongst Jews. He is 100% Jewish, but he is a Christian. He is faithful to God. He obeys God. He has not been forgotten by God. He is evidence that God has not forgotten all Jewish people. He then gives an example from the Old Testament, from a book called 1 Kings chapter 19. You don't have to go there. 1 Kings chapter 19 is the story of the great prophet Elijah. And there's a part of that story where Elijah cries out to God, God, forget the Israelites. They've gone too far. None of them believe. Look at verse 4. God says to Elijah, you're wrong. You think there's none left, but there's 7,000. There's a remnant of true believers. In verse 5, in Paul's day, and by the way, still in ours, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now that word remnant uh, is one we don't commonly use. It means small quantity. What this passage means so far is that there are believers in Paul's day, 2,000 years ago, and today, who were Jewish by ethnic heritage, but Christian in their faith. A remnant, a small quantity of Jewish people who have remained faithful to God, who accepted Jesus as the Messiah. How have they done this? By grace. Not by keeping the law, but by the unwarranted but overflowing love of God. So there we have the present situation. There is a remnant of Jewish people who are Christians who still believe in, in Jesus, who are still following God. But then it's not all good news. Verse 6 and verse 7. We're reminded here simultaneously that while there are some Jewish people who accept Jesus, the remnant, the majority, I'll call the rest, the rest have their hearts hardened towards God. And hardening of the heart in this context means giving people over to their stubbornness. Paul then quotes, have a look, the book of Deuteronomy. He says, they have eyes that cannot see. And so when you step back from the first 10 verses, you have this simple and yet devastating scenario. For the Jewish people, there are a small quantity, a remnant of people with Jewish heritage who believe. But the vast majority, they have rejected Jesus is Messiah. They do not follow God. They've turned their backs on Him. The elect, the remnant, versus the rest, the hardened. I don't know if you've seen recently, 
Um, but there's been several high-profile uh, Christians who have walked away from their faith. Has anyone seen those in the news? I won't say their names, but it's pastors, writers, authors, theologians, evangelists, songwriters, YouTubers, bloggers. Once people who claim to love Jesus, and yet now do not. Once people who actually work to tell other people about Jesus, but now seem to work very hard at telling people why Jesus is false. And as I referred to before, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then I have no doubt that you've had this experience too. Friends you know, friends you love, friends you once shared what seemed to be a common faith with who've walked away. And in my opinion, that's amongst the most devastating experiences we can have as a Christian. I could tell you a hundred stories of seeing it. There was a man, a bloke, um, when I was a a teenager, uh, I grew up in church, I wasn't a Christian, but my family were Christian, I grew up in church, and this guy took a real interest in me, we'd go to footy games together, he was a leader in the church, a really great guy, Um, people admired him, people loved him, Um, he he took that interest in me to try and share about Jesus with me, all those kinds of things. I I lost track of him, um, but when I became a Christian, 10 years later, I began to keep thinking about him, going, oh, what a good guy, making that effort in me, because I'm not the likeable person I, I am now, obviously, I was terrible. Why are you laughing? Anyway, (laughs) unfortunately, I got a phone call a few years ago. Dave, have you heard about John? He's left his wife. He's left his kids. He's not a Christian anymore. Think of the the person you would least expect this to happen to, and, and this was John. I don't reckon there's much pain like those ones. I reckon you feel as if this person, amongst all people, is done, yeah? They can't come back from this. And I know that for many of you here tonight, this is not theoretical, this is real. Parents, boyfriends, girlfriends, spouses, siblings, friends, you've seen this happen and it's shook your own faith. But what we're about to see unveiled for us in the Bible is that even as devastating as this is, it's not the end. Don't give up on anyone. Because God can do anything. God can save scumbags like us. And there is no one too far gone for God. And he can even bring back people who used to say they were believers. What we're about to see is that God is not through with Israel, but I'm not just talking about the remnant. I'm talking about the rest. The biggest section in Romans 11 is this second part here between verse 11 to verse 32. And this is the section where Paul, the author, he moves from talking about the present situation with the Jewish people to prophesying about the future, to predicting what will happen. More than that, to unveiling God's plan and purposes for His people in the future. And by the way, that future means right now, and it also means the future to come. Have a look at verse 11. Paul begins this second section with another question. Did they stumble, the Jewish people, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Are they too far gone? Is the case hopeless? The answer, not at all. 
Israel's fall is not total, nor is it final. God has a plan for the Jewish people. And get this, here's a kingdom plan for the Jewish people that involves you and me. I do want to say now uh, that this is the part of Romans 11, which is particularly intricate and complex. So stick with it. If you have a Bible, have it open. And, and I promise the complexity rewards you. Because the complexity reveals a plan that God has for you, for me, for the Jewish Christians, for all Christian people of such astonishing beauty, majesty. It is truly breathtaking. Have a look at verse 11 to verse 13. It's going to be on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can follow along. Verse 11 to verse 13. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather... Because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Now, just pause there. This is an incredibly important few sentences, and we're just going to go through it sentence by sentence. It says two predominant things that we need to grasp hold of, two things, two parts of God's plan which affect our lives. But there are two things which on first glance seem utterly baffling. Number one, we've just read it. Through Israel's rejection, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Let's just think about that for a moment. Through Israel's rejection, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, who are the Gentiles? Gentiles is just a word for anyone who's not Jewish. I googled how many Jewish people there are on the Central Coast. Um, there's 330,000 people, people live on the Central Coast. 92 people responded that they were Jewish in the last census, census. So what that means is it's very unlikely that you have a Jewish heritage, and that means you are a Gentile. It's not an insult. It's just a fact. You are a Gentile. Israel's rejection has brought salvation to the Gentiles. What does Paul do in verse 11 and 12? Well, first of all, he reminds us the Jewish people have transgressed. We've just seen that. Have a look. Did they stumble? No, because of their transgression. Verse 12, but if their transgression. Transgression means sin, turning away from God. And then he says, that transgression of the Jewish people has led to our salvation. If indeed you are a Christian here today, how has that happened? You might never have met a Jewish person. How has their rebellion against God led to you being able to be a Christian? Well, it's twofold. First of all, Jesus was crucified as a result of the Jewish leadership and the Jewish people rejecting him as Messiah. And it is by the death of Jesus, as a result of that rejection, that people like you and I can be saved. But it's not just that. After Jesus rose from the dead and rose to heaven, the Christians went out to tell everyone about it. And what they would often do is go, first of all, to the synagogues, kind of like the Jewish churches, to the Jewish centers of towns to tell people about the Messiah. But check out what happened. It's in the book of Acts, chapter 13. You don't have to go there. I'm going to read it for you. Paul and Barnabas, some of the early apostles and disciples, they go to a synagogue. They tell the Jewish people about Jesus. The Jewish people reject the message about Jesus. Then listen to what Paul says in Acts 13, verse 46. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourself worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. God told his 
apostles and disciples to take the news of Jesus to the Jewish people. But once the Jewish people heard it and rejected it, the mission was then expanded to the Gentiles. And what that means is that if you are here today as a Christian and a Gentile, you are a direct beneficiary, inheritor of this promise and this ministry and this blessing. And then what we see unfold in Acts in Romans 11 is an incredible illustration to prove the point. Look at verse 17 to verse 22. Paul gives an illustration of two olive trees. Tree number one is a cultivated tree. That means a tree that's well looked after, pruned and and cared for. That tree represents the Jewish people. Tree number two, a wild, unlooked after tree, uncultivated tree. And that tree represents the Gentile world. In this metaphor, Paul, the author, says that some of the branches from the cultivated tree have been broken off. And those branches represent the unbelieving Jewish people who have been hardened. They have rejected Christ. They have rejected God. But in their place, a branch, a shoot, a twig from the wild olive tree, the Gentile tree, has been grafted in to God's tree. Those are the believing Gentiles who are now introduced into the church that has its very origins in the Jews. And what that means is the tree that remains after the dead branches have been pulled off and the Gentile branches have been put in is the same tree, the remnant and the Gentile believers together, equally beneficiaries of the covenants and the patriarchs and the prophets and the promises of the Old Testament. Now let's just pause for a moment. I wonder if you are a believer, if you're a Christian here today, if you're a Gentile believer here today, how does that make you feel? Well, the odds are you might feel pretty nonplussed. Okay. Great. The Jews, tree, together. Wonderful. What's the big deal? Do you feel that? But if you do feel that way, and I only accuse you of it because I feel the same way, it means you don't quite understand what's taken place. The point Paul is making in emphasizing this in such detail is that it should amaze us. And if it doesn't, it's because we don't understand what it means. Let me try and explain it a a different way. Ten years ago, uh, Prince William, I love talking about the royal family. Gee, they make my own family seem really good, you know. (laughs) Prince William got married to Kate. If you were around, you'd watch the wedding, amazing, beautiful, terrific. Makes a lot of sense, both posh people from England marrying. But I want you to imagine that a week before the wedding, a different scenario took place. Prince William jumped on a plane and flew over to Sydney. And he jumped into a taxi and took the first quickest route to King's Cross. Now, King's Cross now is dead. No one even goes out in King's Cross. But back in the day, it was the hotbed of prostitution. Prince William goes to the dirtiest, scungiest brothel in all of King's Cross. And whilst there, he goes and he walks through it and he goes into a room and there's a poor young girl there. She's a prostitute. She has track marks up and down her arms. She's a drug addict. And Prince William, he gets there next to her on one knee and he pulls out a ring. And he says, you will be my bride. You will be my wife. And he brings it to her feet and he takes her out and he goes and they buy the most expensive wedding dress and they go to the big cathedral into the city 
and they marry. He's kicked Kate out. There they are. And in front of the congregation and the world, Prince William declares, This is my wife. What is mine is hers. She is mine. She's in my family. And you will treat her the way you treat me as she is royalty. Now, of course, the idea of that scenario ever taking place is ridiculous, isn't it? Could never, ever happen, right? Except it has. This is a tiny, insignificant picture of what has occurred to every single Christian. If you are a Gentile believer here today, the Bible tells us that you have been grafted into God's family, adopted as his child. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, chose you, died on the cross for you. And he really has come and plucked you out of dirty, sleazy, desperate sinfulness. And if that's not a big deal to you, I'm afraid it's because you don't properly understand sin. And he has cleaned us up. And he's made us into new people. And the amazing truth is that no matter what your week has looked like behind closed doors, no matter what the search history is on your phone, no matter the conversations or the thoughts you've had this very day, if you are a Christian, when God looks at you, do you know what he sees? He is not depressed by you. He loves you. He doesn't look at you and go, scumbag, sinner. He says, child, mine. How does that make you feel? Israel's rejection has brought salvation to the Gentiles, but God's plan is not over there. Come back to verse 11 and 12. I have some good and bad news for you. The good news is that you're a saved person if you trust in Jesus. You are a Christian. It's not bad news, but the news you might never have anticipated before is that your salvation is not expressly or solely for your benefit. Isn't that amazing? You, even as a Christian, are not the center of God's universe. He did not just save you for you. He saved you for others. Look at verse 11 and 12. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Now, pause. Keep that there, please, brother. Pause. Remember, amongst the Jewish people, you have the remnant, a smaller man of, of Jews who are Christians, who are faithful to God. And then you have the rest, those who are hardened. This is not talking about the remnant, and I'll explain how we know that in a little bit. This is talking about the rest, those who in verse 5 and 6 were described as hardened. What we're told here is that their rejection of God is not permanent, but temporary. How's it described? A stumble. A stumble that has served to bring salvation to us. But when we are saved, our salvation will cause envy amongst Israel. Now, envy can sometimes feel like a negative word. It's often, usually for us, negative, sinful, but not always. If you envy something good, you envy better health or more godliness. 
more love in your life, more selflessness. Here we have painted the incredible picture of God's plan. That Gentiles knowing and loving God will produce in Jewish people envy. And envy that they want to know the one true God. And an envy that will lead to, verse 12, full inclusion. Now what does that mean? We'll come to verse 23. In verse 23, Paul goes back to the olive tree metaphor. Remember the two trees? Having spoken of the grafting in of the Gentile believers into his family tree, he now predicts what? The grafting back in of the old branches that have been cut off. Now, who were they again? The rest. The Jewish people who've rejected God and Jesus, they are the ones referred to here being brought back into God's kingdom and not just a remnant anymore. Now look at verse 25 and 26. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Make sense? Cool. Okay. It's confusing. What does that mean? Yes, we have a hardening that's happened on Israel, but not permanent. When the fullness of Gentiles has come in, all Israel will be saved. What this seems to be saying is that when every Gentile Christian has become a Christian, every Gentile Christian who will become a Christian has become a Christian, this will act as a trigger of sorts for the full salvation of Israel. What does it mean? Well, let's just establish what it doesn't mean first. First of all, we know that there is nothing said here or anywhere in the New Testament about a return of the Jewish people to the promised land of Israel, the country. There is no reference to land at all. In 1948, the country Israel, which we know, know today, and if you've been watching the news, you see there's a constant state of war almost between Israel and the Palestinians. That country was re-established in 1948 after the Second World War and the Holocaust. The Jewish people fled Europe and elsewhere to get safety in Israel, which they had actually lost, okay, and then the United Nations declared, hey, this is now a country, okay, Israel. Several Christians have taken the establishment of Israel as a country to be tied in with this prophecy, that there is somehow a connection between Israel, the country, and the salvation of Jewish people. But that is not what a plain or a deep reading of this text indicates. There is no reference to land. Point one. What else doesn't it mean? Well, we know that this can't be a reference to the remnant. All Israel will be saved being the remnant. Because in verse 7, if you have a look in 11 verse 7, Paul uses the language of Israel to refer to all Israel, the rest of Israel, not the remnant. He refers to the remnant as the... Remnant. So we know he doesn't mean that. 
Number three, we know this cannot be a reference to the new Israel you might somehow have heard of. The idea of a new Israel being Christians and, and the remnant of the Jews together. We know it doesn't mean that. Because the whole purpose of this chapter is to distinguish between Gentiles and Jews. That's what the metaphor, the illustration of the olive trees represents. We also know the term all Israel is a biblical term that is hyperbolic. What that means is that when Paul uses the term all Israel, it doesn't mean every single person who is Jewish in the world, but it means a majority. In the same way that if I say all Australia um, you know, support the Australian soccer team, well, some Australians do, but some Australians don't care about soccer at all. Some Australians are from England or South Africa or India, and they don't care. So it's a hyperbolic, hyperbolic statement. So what does it mean? Friends, the Israel that will be saved in verse 26 is the Israel that has been partially hardened in verse 25. This hardened Israel, the rest that I referred to before, is distinct from the Gentiles and the remnant. So the plan being revealed and unveiled for us here about the future is that at some point there will be a widespread revival amongst Jewish people to Christianity. There will be a widespread turning of Jewish people away from rejecting God towards following God. That is a promise of something that will occur before Jesus returns. Will this happen gradually or immediately in one big moment? We're not told. And in fact, the Bible isn't a book to be kind of, you know, some people read the Bible like it's long division. If I cross that off and move that over there, Jesus is returning here. That's not the purpose of these prophecies. You see, the purpose of this prophecy and this unveiling of God's plan is not to focus people like you and I on the where or even the when, but the how. How will this happen? Verse 26 and verse 27. How will the Jewish people be saved? As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What type of salvation will the Jews experience? It is salvation through faith in the deliverer, in Jesus Christ. You know, the, the New Testament uh, authors they often understood Jesus to be the culmination of the Old Testament. So he, He's the last Adam, the suffering servant, the son of David, the son of man, the faithful remnant, the ultimate prophet, the reigning king. But he's also true Israel. He is, like ancient Israel, God's chosen one. Like ancient Israel, he came up out of Egypt. He passed through the waters. He was tested in the wilderness. However, unlike ancient Israel, he passed the test. Jesus was obedient to God every single step. When God told him to drink the cup of wrath that was reserved for him, he did. Jesus obeyed God 
to the cross. And he took the sins of Jews and Gentiles on the cross and rose from the dead so that whomsoever would call upon his name, Jew, Gentile, white, black, male, female, rich, poor, really well behaved, respectable, absolute, absolute wretch, that whomsoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. In the Old Testament, people looked towards citizenship of Israel as their key to salvation. But for us, all people, people from the Central Coast, people from Sydney, even people from Newcastle, all people can be saved through Jesus as Israel. Not depending on citizenship of Israel, but citizenship to God's kingdom. What is God's plan for his people? God's plan for his people is that the Jewish people reject Jesus. Due to that rejection, Gentile people hear the news of Jesus and some of us are saved. Through our salvation, envy is produced amongst Jewish people who finally, before Jesus returns, will experience restoration in large number. God is calling his people to himself and using you to do it. Now, there's much in here um, for us to grasp hold of and wrestle with and think about. Um, but I just want to suggest three uh, points for you to walk away with that I, that I hope are helpful. Um, apply them to your life and talk about them and think about them. The first one is that in the church, there is absolutely no room whatsoever for anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is a term that means uh, hatred of Jewish people. Anti-Semitism is a a grievous, wicked thing that has actually defined humanity for the past 4,000 years. The Jewish people have been the victims of the most atrocious crimes uh, and sins imaginable. Uh, It's a wicked thing indeed for other people to do it. It's especially ignorant and wicked for Christians to do it. Um, We should love and value Jewish people. You know the reason why only 92 Jewish people um, identified themselves in the census? is because the census had problems with its confidentiality. And so Jewish people were scared to identify themselves. Isn't that shocking? However, it's also wrong and sad when Christians, in response to horrific anti-Semitism, take the side of the country Israel on every single political issue, as if Israel was somehow God's country. Now, for many of you, um, with I know there might be little interest in what's happening in the Middle East, which is absolutely fine, but for some of you, you'll be aware of what's happening there. It's a horrible war that's been taking place between Israel and Palestine. And I'm not saying you can't read all the information and land on the side of Israel politically. Absolutely, feel free to do those things. It's not sinful. But it is absolutely erroneous to think that this is what God is calling you to do, as if Israel, the nation state, is God's country as if the non-believing leadership of Israel, the secular nation-state, is somehow God's country. 
sympathy towards Israel must never lead us to dismissing injustice and the pain of Arabic people. Nor should injustice and pain that Arabic people cause to Israel, Israelis and Jewish people be dismissed either. Instead, we must follow the direction of our Lord Jesus, who told us that blessed are the peacemakers. We must think critically and clearly on ethical issues like this as Christian people. But let me be clear. Uh, the most wicked type of anti-Semitism and anti-Arabic, anti-Islamic, anti-any type of behaviour, bigotry behaviour like this is to deny them is to deny them access to the gospel, to believe that Israel is God's country so they don't need to hear about Jesus, to not evangelise them and so condemn them. May God help us from falling into this trap. Secondly, always remember God has a plan. You are where God wants you to be, when he wants you to be, for his express purpose and his plan to save his people will always prevail. And what that means is that we should always trust God. And it also means we should never give up on anyone. I want you to consider the plan we've just, I just, you know, we just saw in Romans. It's been unveiled to us. Never in a million planning sessions with a million people would we ever come up with this plan. This isn't your plan or my plan. And we praise him for that being so. This plan is astonishing and breathtaking and awe-inspiring. And it should lead us to know that our God has a plan for all things. It should also lead us to know that there is no one, no one, who can resist God's plan if he calls them. So don't write people off. You know, I was 28 years old uh, when I became a Christian. I grew up in a Christian family. Um, and I had 28 years worth of people witnessing to me and sharing faith with me and inviting me. And it was the most painful invitations all the time. And Come to this, come to that. Here's a book. Oh, great, thanks. Ba 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 ba. My parents never gave up on me. My sister never gave up on me. They kept praying. They kept inviting. They kept witnessing. They kept living such a godly life that it produced in me envy. I do not know who is in your too hard basket, but burn the basket. I do not know who is on your list of people you believe are too far gone for God, that there's no point telling them about Jesus, but burn the list. Don't give up hope. If God can move heaven and earth in order to bring his people to himself, if God has moved heaven and earth in order to bring you to himself, who are you to say he won't do it for your mum, for your dad, for your boyfriend, for your girlfriend, for your husband, for your wife, for your best friend, for your boss, for your dot? dot, dot. Keep praying, keep witnessing, keep sharing, keep loving. The final part of uh, Romans 11 is this incredible poem of praise. 
It's always as if Paul has reached the top of a mountaintop, you know, 11 chapters of unveiling God's incredible plan, and he's taking a breath. (gasps) And then he turns and he surveys the view from the mountain he's just climbed. Listen to what he writes. How Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? The answer? No one. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for every good gift you give to us. And we thank you for your plan. Your plan for your people which always prevails. Lord, thank you for Jesus and help us to be struck anew every day with gratitude and joy that you would save us. Lord, help us uh, to burn our lists, to burn our buckets, to just get back into witnessing and sharing and praying and loving and caring for those people in our lives we believe are too far gone. Lord, use us to share your gospel and we pray that you would save many. We pray that you would save those people in our minds right now, Lord. And I pray, Father, for those here who aren't Christians, um, that they could understand the truth of what Jesus has done for them on the cross, that they could experience the great miracle of salvation and new birth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.